0: Let's read together from Matthew 8:23. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him, and behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, "Save us, Lord; we are perishing." And he said to them, "Why are you afraid, O you of little faith?" Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marvelled, saying, "What sort of man is this that even the winds and sea obey him?" Good morning. It's good to be with you this morning, and uh, it's a real pleasure for me to be here um, and to be able to open the Word with you this morning. Uh, I'm Jim Showers. Is Pastor Evan introduced me. I'm executive director of the Friends of Israel Gospel Ministry, which is located in southern New Jersey about 20 miles from here. And uh, it's my privilege to direct this historic Jewish ministry. Uh, The ministry began 85 years ago in 1938. And I want to share a little bit about the ministry so you'll understand a little bit of the organization that I lead. Um, Friends of Israel began in the 1930s at a different time than we live in today. It was a time when Hitler and the Nazis rose to power in Germany in 1933. And they blamed the Jewish people for their defeat in World War I. And they began to take away the rights of the Jewish people. As soon as they came to power, they began passing laws that restricted the movement and the activity of Jewish people. And it got progressively worse as the 1930s went on. And um, and so they be- believed that Germany, if it was ever going to be great, had to eliminate the Jewish people, which is a very, very dangerous thought. Well, while this is going on in Europe and in the 1930s, there was a group of believers in the city of Philadelphia, just up the road from us, who began meeting to pray about the plight of the Jewish people. They were concerned for the suffering in Nazi Germany. And... Um, they were compelled to help Jewish refugees flee the Holocaust. It included some rather well-known Christian leaders at that time, like Dr. Louis Berry Schaefer, who was the founder of Dallas Seminary, and Dr. Harry Ironside, who became pastor of Moody Church. It was their study of Scripture, what the Word of God told them, that taught them of God's promises to restore Israel to the promised land, and God's desire to bless the Jewish people from Genesis 12:3, that really motivated them on to what they did. And by 1938, the Holocaust was severely affecting Jewish people as they were trying to get out of Germany, but not an easy task to accomplish when everything was stacked against you. If you were Jewish in 1930s and you tried to flee Germany, if you could get out, you could only take one suitcase with personal items and about $200 of cash. So all of your wealth and earthly possessions were left behind. And if you remember, the 1930s was a Great Depression. It was very, very difficult for those that escaped. They had little to live on. And so uh, that was the great need as Jewish refugees were pouring out of Germany into Europe, into the United States. And then there was a very precipitous event on November 9th of 1938. It was called Kristallnacht, which in German means the night of the broken glass, it was an evening, a nighttime in which the Nazis organized riots, pogroms against the Jewish people. And all across Germany, uh, synagogues were burnt along with the Torah scrolls. And uh, Jewish homes and businesses were invaded. They, the windows were broken out, their personal effects thrown in the street. They were beaten, Jewish women raped, many murdered. And 30,000 Jewish people were put on transports to labor camps. This was the beginning of the movement of Jewish people to labor camps. And it was this event more than anything else that caused these godly men who were praying for the Jewish people to act and form the friends of Israel. You know, Genesis 12:3, where God says, I'll bless those who bless you. When you study that in the Hebrew, you come to understand something you don't get out of the English translation. That the blessing, the word God used for blessing, is a high standard. If you want God's blessing, you have to act. It means you have to physically get involved in helping. And these men understood that. Getting together to pray was good, but not enough. And so on December 1st of 1938, they formed the Friends of Israel Refugee Relief Committee. I find it interesting that the Friends of Israel is in our original name, because in 1938 there was no Israel. It wasn't until 10 years later that Israel became a nation again, and yet it was because of their understanding of the Scriptures that God would someday restore the Jewish people to the land, and that was part of their motivation in helping the Jewish people, that they called our organization from its inception the Friends of Israel. 18 years later, in 1956... They asked one of the founders who was our first president, he was a very successful businessman in the city of Philadelphia, why they came to form the Friends of Israel. I'd like to read for you his words and what he said. He said, some years ago when the Jewish people were so mercilessly persecuted by Hitler, like so many other Christians, I felt keenly about their tragedy. I knew from the beginning that Hitler had sealed his own doom the moment he started his wicked mistreatment of the Jews, because God said to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. For the past 18 years, the Lord has, in a marvelous way, used the friends of Israel to bring physical help and, above all, spiritual comfort to the Jewish people in every part of the world. Four years later, we began the publication of a magazine called Israel My Glory. Some of you may receive this. This current issue is on uh, the book of Esther for such a time as this. But each issue is about teaching the word of God. And, um, and that magazine, the name for the magazine came from Isaiah forty six thirteen, where God, speaking through the prophet Isaiah, said, I will bring near my righteousness. It is not far off, and my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. Here's what they said in the first issue about why they picked that verse and that name. We are naming this periodical, Israel My Glory, to call attention to the fact that God is not through with the Jewish people, to remind ourselves of God's irrevocable promises to Israel and of his benevolent purpose in choosing them to be the human channel through which Christ should come, and the channel also of future blessings to the world. Israel is a unique nation. Not because they're a special people, but because of the special work God has done through them. These men understood that, and it led them to forming this ministry and publishing this magazine. And today, our mission is simply that we are a worldwide evangelical ministry proclaiming biblical truth about Israel and the Messiah while bringing physical and spiritual comfort to the Jewish people. So what does spiritual and physical comfort to the Jewish people look like? Well, we have volunteer ministries. We run two trips a year to Israel. We take people over to Israel to do volunteer work, to work beside just everyday Israelis, helping with some of the basic needs there. We also stand against anti-Semitism and with Israel. And and, um, we also operate an Israel Relief Fund, in which we collect money to help with humanitarian needs in Israel. Uh, An Aliyah return fund that helps Jewish people who want to return back to the land of Israel. We have workers in 13 countries around the world, and we have a helps ministry where we just roll up our sleeves and help the Jewish people. That's physical comfort. But spiritual comfort also involves witnessing, um, being a witness to the gospel, both in word and in deed. And so part of our communicating biblical truth about Israel and Messiah is sharing the gospel and teaching biblical truth. Uh, we do that not only through our magazine, Israel My Glory, and by the way, if you'd like to get a free one-year subscription to that magazine, you can go to our website, FOI.org, FOI for Friends of Israel, o, O-R-G, and sign up for a free one-year subscription, Sample Six Issues, And then you can decide whether you want to become a subscriber. But we also have a weekly radio program, the Friends of Israel Today, that is broadcast on over 600 radio stations around the country. Uh, We have conferences with Bible studies, speak in churches. And we run a tour every spring and fall when there isn't COVID. So I have the privilege as the executive director of the Friends of Israel to lead those tours every March and October. And... It's one of the real highlights, one of the real blessings for me in my ministry uh, because I get to go to Israel so often and see the place where it all occurred. Uh, So much, about 80% of the Bible took place within the land of Israel. It's an amazing place. And people who go tell me that it has changed their lives. Uh, The Bible goes from being black and white text to living color when you go to Israel. And it is a trip of a lifetime. And one of the places we always love to go is the Sea of Galilee. We travel to the Sea of Galilee uh, and spend three days around the Sea of Galilee. Why? Because the Sea of Galilee is the middle. You're in the midst of where Jesus did about 80% of his ministry. Jesus set up his headquarters in Capernaum. This is... Right on the edge, the northwest edge of the Sea of Galilee is the city of Capernaum. And there, Jesus did so many of his miracles and his special works. It's where he did so much of his teaching. It was along the rim, the edge of the Sea of Galilee. Now, the Sea of Galilee, if I could take you there this morning, I would. We'd be out on the Sea of Galilee riding the boat the picture you saw and we'd be able to do this message from there which would make it all the more special but the Sea of Galilee is a very interesting construction when you drive across Israel to get to the Sea of Galilee we go across to the Jezreel Valley very flat when we get to the other side we start descending we go down and down until we're 700 feet below sea level it is one of the lower, lowest places on the face of the earth, and it's, it's like a bowl because it's surrounded by mountains. There's a rim of mountains that go all the way around the Sea of Galilee. It's kind of like if you had a bowl of cereal this morning, it's that puddle of water or milk in the bottom of your bowl of cereal. That's the Sea of Galilee. It's 13 miles long and seven and a half miles wide. And you say, well, that's a lake. That's not a sea. So why do they call it a sea? Well, in Hebrew, you have one word for a large body of water, translated sea. And so this sea is really the center of where Jesus did his ministry. And on one particular day, as we just heard read, in the book of Matthew, it says that Jesus got into a boat. You recall in the Gospels, right? Oftentimes you would read, Jesus got in a boat and went to the other side. Or Jesus got into a boat with his disciples and departed. Why did Jesus do that? This is the easiest way for him to get away from the crowds. In fact, in in this particular passage, if Jesus gets into the boat, he had spent the day teaching and healing people. In the evening, he went to Peter's mother-in-law's house to heal her. And it says they brought the crowds and he cast out demons and he healed the sick. It's late at night. Jesus is exhausted and the crowds continue to come. And the only way for Jesus to get rest was to get in the boat and go across the lake, a trip, journey that would take a couple hours. And so that's what we read as we come to Matthew chapter 8. In fact, I want to reread part of that for you now. On this particular day, Jesus got a boat, it says, and when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. The fact that Jesus is asleep tells us a little bit about how exhausted he was. But I want to focus upon what happened after they got into the boat, that suddenly the sea that could be so calm and pleasant turned into a tempest. Here's a couple pictures that artists have rendered of what was going on, but how can such a placid, smaller body of water turn into something like this? It's again because of the construction of the Sea of Galilee, because of its location, because I told you that the Sea of Galilee is rimmed with mountains and where those mountains come together you have notches in the mountains. You have gaps. Roads tend to be built in those notches. Now when a storm comes with a lot of strong winds those winds are forced to go down between those notches and whenever you compress wind you speed it up. In the book of Mark chapter 4 where this is recorded it says and the winds pressed down upon the sea and suddenly the sea went from calm to a tempest and you know this is really a microcosm a, a picture of what life can be like how we could be sailing along in life and everything can seem calm and in just a moment it can turn to a tempest that's exactly how I describe what happened to me back in October 31st of 2005. It was a Monday morning, and I found myself in the city of Philadelphia at Wills Eye Institute. My eye doctor had sent me to Wills because I had a little growth in my eye. It was on my iris. I was born with it. And it was never a problem. Many doctors had looked at it and told me just uh, it would not be a problem but it had changed color and so my eye doctor said I want you to go over and get it checked out they had me come in at six in the morning Diane went with me my wife uh, I tried to talk her out of going because I said this is routine I've been through this before I know exactly what I'm going to hear and she said I think I should go It was like four and a half hours of all kinds of tests and four, four or five different doctors examining my eye it was very thorough and about 11 o'clock in the morning, I'm sitting in an examining chair in an examining room. Off to my right is Diane sitting on a chair, and there's this team of four doctors standing in front of me. They're in a huddle. They have my chart open, and they're having a conversation I can't understand because they're using medical terms that mean nothing to me. <clears throat> Suddenly, one of the doctors said, "Do we all agree on the diagnosis?" And they all said yes. And then he said, who wants to do the counseling? Now, Wills Eye Institute, the oncology department there, is the top leading place in the world to go for eye cancer. And so there's a husband and wife team that put that on the map. They are the experts on eye cancer. And the wife of the team said, I will do it. And the other three doctors left the room. And she turned to me and said, Mr. Showers, I want to tell you that you have melanoma of the eye. That was not what I expected to hear. The C word. Some of you have heard that before. Been told you have cancer. You know how that is, how your mind floods with questions you have no answers for. It's like your head is spinning. Like, is this a bad dream? Am I going to wake up? And then she reached up on the shelf and grabbed the textbook that she and her husband wrote on eye cancer and opened up to a page and she said, here's a picture of a gentleman who had the same thing. Yours is late stage one. He was in stage two of three stages. We operated on him, but he died. But she said, we want to operate Thursday on your eye and we think there's a good chance that you will survive this and then she turns to my wife and says mrs showers i just want you to know we'll do everything we can to save your husband's life now guys this is this was like a nightmare i mean i i had no pain i had no symptoms and i couldn't believe what i was hearing so we had to go up the hall to do the paperwork for the surgery and go to the lab to get some blood work drawn it's it's noon. I haven't had one second to talk to Diane about this. And as we stood up to leave, her phone rang. It was our son. He and our daughter-in-law were eight months pregnant. This was their first grandchild and our first, or their first child, our first grandchild. And uh, they knew they were going to have a girl. But the doctor, the delivery doctor, had concerns about my laws pregnancy. And so they had sent them to a specialist that morning, and they got some very disturbing news that there was a problem with the pregnancy and that uh, the baby may be born with serious problems. So there we are standing in the lobby of the elevators, having this conversation with our son. And suddenly the, the diagnosis I got seemed secondary to the concern for our unborn grandchild. Thursday of that week I had surgery. They removed a third of my iris. Some of you have seen me wear sunglasses around here and that's because of sensitivity to light for the surgery. But that same day they sent my daughter-in-law in to have a test done and it put her into labor. And so our granddaughter was born that same day, that Thursday and she was put on life support to keep her alive. This was the first time I'd really been in a tempest in all my life. It was not the place I wanted to be, nor was it the place I expected to be. And I suddenly realized that I was not in control of what was going on. It it was Almost on a very small scale, my Job moment, where one bad news, I couldn't even process it, and the next bad news came. And you know, it's easy for us to trust God when everything's going well, right? When things are going well in life, so, oh yeah, I trust the Lord. But what do you do when the tempest comes? What do you do when you realize that your life is no longer in your hands, it's in the Lord's hands? What do we do when we face trials? How should we face these trials in life? I want to give you three steps today. Three steps to finding calm in the midst of a tempest. And here's the first one. Turn to the Lord. Sounds simple. But we need to talk about what it means to turn to the Lord, because it's not our nature to do that. It's our nature to try and fix what's broken. I appreciate what Dan Coleman had to say this morning about his last couple of weeks. Because we tend to dwell upon whatever's going on that isn't right. And it is, our I'm a father, I'm a husband, I fix things around the house. Something's broken, I get busy and fix it. And when God brings a tempest into our lives, it challenges all that. Listen, Jesus' disciples, they were experienced fishermen. They had been on this lake many a time. And they knew that they were about to drown if something didn't happen. You know, it it says here in Matthew chapter 8 that the boat was being swamped by the waves. This is what defines just an everyday trial from a tempest. It's the waves. They are so high, it's coming into the boat. And you feel like you're going to drown. And what did they do? They turned to the Lord. They knew this was bigger than they were. And so in verse 25 we read, And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, for we are perishing. They turned the only place they could turn to because this was bigger than them. And that leads me to our second step, which is to trust in the Lord. It's one thing to turn to Him; We can turn to the Lord and still trust in ourselves. But we need to transfer that trust to the Lord. Jesus' response here, and I love it, he said to them, verse 26, Why are you afraid, O ye of little faith? What about you? If I had the privilege to be in the presence of my Savior and I called out to him and he said to me, Why are you afraid? Oh, you have little faith. That'd be like putting a dagger in my heart. Over in Matthew chapter, or Luke chapter 8, the companion passage, he says it this way Where is your faith? See, the issue here wasn't did they have enough faith, that is never the issue. The issue is, what are you trusting in? Are you trusting in what you can do about this situation, or are you willing to trust me? Jesus told them that they were going to the other side of the lake when they got into the boat. You don't read here in Matthew, but over in in Luke and Mark, he he says as he gets in the boat, Let us go to the other side of the lake. And so they set out. Jesus told them where they were going to go. He's the Son of God. He's the Messiah. And now, moments later, when they're in the middle of this tempest, they've forgotten about that. They believe that they're about to go to the bottom of the Sea of Galilee. Did they believe what Jesus told them? That they were with the Messiah? Was God going to let the Messiah die in all this? Of course not. they were not trusting in the Lord. They were trusting in what they could see and what they knew. As experienced fishermen, they understood the the seriousness of this situation. And then verse 26, Jesus rebuked the winds and the sea. Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm, and the men marveled, saying, what sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? Jesus spoke, and there's instant calm, and the disciples marveled because they had never seen anyone who could command the wind and the sea. They'd seen Jesus heal people. They'd seen him cast out demons. They'd seen him multiply food, but this was something new. They had no idea what he was going to do, and see, I think this is the secret to surviving the tempest in our lives, It's a matter of faith. It really tests us to know whether we're trusting in ourselves or trusting in the Lord. In Jeremiah 17, in the Old Testament, as God had already passed judgment that he was going to send Israel into exile, he says through the prophet Jeremiah why he brings trials into our life. He said, I search the heart and I test the mind. Not to reveal to God who we are, but to reveal to us. The heart, the Lord said, is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? It's not enough just to turn to the Lord. We also need to trust him as we go through severe trials. And that leads me to the third step, which is accepting that the Lord will do what's best. Accepting that whatever the outcome of this tempest is, God is going to do what is best. That was the hard lesson that God had to teach me through my tempest 18 years ago. Because I wanted God to fix it my way. You ever prayed that way? Oh Lord, here's what you need to do. That means when I pray that way that I'm not accepting that God's in control. And it's normal for us to do that. But you know, God doesn't promise to fix it our way. I wanted God to heal my granddaughter. And I prayed fervently. I prayed morning, noon, and night. I prayed when I got up. I prayed when I went to bed. And I bargained with God I said, God, take my life if it will save my granddaughter's life. That's what I wanted. God had a different outcome. My granddaughter lived a little less than two weeks. They turned the machines off and she went to glory. Much better place than I went. I stayed here. But God wasn't done with me here. I've come to realize back then I wasn't executive director of the Friends of Israel I didn't know where I was going I've come to realize that God had more for me to do before he takes me home we need to accept God's will for our life that's what the way we should face the tempest in our lives see when we choose whether hardships will make us better or bitter there's two outcomes to any difficult time we go through in life. We can become better or we can become bitter. And when we don't get the answer we want and when we blame God for allowing the tempest, we become bitter. But when we accept that this is God's will for us, this is part of his plan for our life, he has a good, and that he has a good purpose in it, we become better. Guys, I have to tell you, One of the things that I learned through all this, Paul talked about in Philippians chapter 4. And these two verses came to life through this difficult, difficult time in our lives. God promises a peace that goes beyond anything we can understand when we turn our trials over to him. A peace beyond understanding. We read here in verse 26 that Jesus calmed the waters. He brought peace. And I think that the lesson in that is that when we go through difficult times, when we go through tempests in our life, when we go through strong trials, if we turn it over to the Lord, if we trust the Lord, and if we accept his outcome, he will provide to us a calm A piece that you cannot explain in human terms. Here's the verses Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Do not be anxious about anything. Oh, it's easy to say that when things are going well. But when we're in a trial, in a tempest, we're not to be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your requests be made known to God in the peace of God which surpasses all understanding. How do you explain that peace? You can't. But Paul said God will give us that peace and it will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Listen, I know that some of you came today facing really big trials in your life. I don't know what they are, but I know in a group this size, there are many in this room today who are struggling. My encouragement to you is not to try and fix it or trust in what you can do, but turn it over to the Lord because God is in control. We as a church right now are facing a trial. I don't know about you. But I didn't see the resignation of Pastor Curtis coming. When I watched that video last fall, it surprised me. And yet, I trust that God moved Pastor Curtis's heart to the ministry he's at now because that was God's will. And the way we can face those uncertainties is to turn it over to the Lord and trust him And accept that he will provide for us in his appropriate time the next shepherd to lead this church. You know, as I study the Bible, one thing that just keeps coming back to me is that God is more concerned with how you respond to the trials that he brings into your life than he is in answering the question why. We may not understand why God took Curtis away from us, but that's okay. This is an opportunity for us as a church to turn to the Lord and trust in what God is doing and accept the outcome. I have to say here this morning as well, if you are someone who's never put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, it's the same process. It's the same number of these three steps. If you're trusting in your own self, you know that's not acceptable to God. The Bible tells us that all of our good works are like filthy rags. And the way to God is by turning to the Lord, trusting him, and accepting the wonderful work that God accomplished on the cross through his son Jesus Christ and his resurrection. Put your faith in the Lord, not in what you can do. And accept that God's will is best, because that's what Paul told us in Romans chapter 8, that we know as believers that for those who love God, all things work together for good. So let me encourage you today, as you may be facing a tempest, this is not new. This wasn't revolutionary when Jesus gave it to his disciples. We see the same pattern in the Old Testament. My life verses, when I went to seminary in my mid 30s, these verses spoke so real to me. It's Proverbs 3 5 and 6. Solomon, speaking to his son, says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not unto your own understanding, and all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I pray for each and everyone here today who has a trial in their life right now. We know those trials come from you because you are trying to shape us into the image of your son. And Lord, it's not always easy to let go of what we want to do to fix the trial. But Jesus taught us here on the Sea of Galilee that we need to turn to him and trust him and accept what he does will be best. Lord, this church is without a shepherd right now, but you know that. You also know who you're preparing to come and be the next shepherd of this congregation. In the meantime, many have stepped forward to fill in the gap until that day. And Lord, we're resting and trusting and accepting that you will bring exactly the right person that is needed. Father, just help us to trust in you with all of our heart, holding back nothing and to not lean on those things that we understand. In everything we do, may we acknowledge you so that you can make straight our paths and this we pray in the wonderful name of our lord and savior jesus christ amen